Hello, everyone. Welcome to Crownsman Energy. I'm your host, Jared Downey. With me is Gaudi Molina. How are you, Gaudi? Good morning. I'm very good. Thank you. Good. Uh, I want to read. So I don't know if this is actually their slogan, but somewhere on their website, it says unleashing maritime autonomy to transform the blue economy. And then another part, it says born in space, inspired by the ocean. So I don't know if that doesn't pique your interest when it comes to energy and industry, then I don't know it will. So we're going to feature, wow, (laughs) Houston Mechatronics. Um, I think they go by HMI. Right. Yes. But before we do any of that, Gowdy, who is our sponsor today? Sponsors. Sponsors. Um, Okay. So first up, we have Solar Set. Introducing the Solar Set Fold. The new foldable frame solar system brings power to your residential and commercial property and can be shipped worldwide. Like all Solar Set products, the Solar Set Fold comes turnkey, pre-assembled, and is easily transported and installed. Learn more about the Solar Set Fold and their full line of amazing solar systems at solarset.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel um, and contact us if you would like to be part of Crownsman Energy. Contact us info at crownsman.com. And last but not least, we've got PowerZone. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas pipelines, dewatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit PowerZone.com. In addition to their inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems, no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com. Perfect. And oh. for that solar set, um, if you get a chance, check out their recent episode that we did on yes, that. Yes, Crownsman Energy, yeah. episode 22, I believe. It's a, it's a short episode, short but and sweet, good. but it gets <laughs> to the point. Yeah. Um, hello, Nicholas. Uh, actually, I don't think I said who was going to be on. You're the founder and the president of the company. Uh, Nicholas Radford, welcome to the show. Hey, Jared. Great to be here. Thanks for thinking of us and excited to get into everything with you today. You know, you've got a pretty interesting product. Um, have you have you come on a lot of shows like ours, uh, people wanting to talk about it and sort of unpack the technology and even the industry itself? Well, I think your show is pretty unique, but we have been able to get the word out through a number of different outlets. Uh, we do have something quite interesting. I think we've got a, an enormous vision. Um, we have a lot of ambition at our company and and have taken a lot of investment to see it through. And so we just, we just love uh, preaching the gospel to anyone who'll listen. Well, the, the term actually mechatronics, I, I know you, you go by HMI, um, but the, I, I, it's actually a new term for me, mechatronics. Mm-hmm. So where does that, what does that come from? Well, it started kind of getting into the vernacular, I think uh, more in, in academia rather, maybe like 15, 20 years ago, I actually took a mechatronics course in uh, in grad school and so i don't really want to tell you how long ago that was but uh it's but but it represents this confluence of electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and 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 the firmware software world that you know puts all that together and and puts it into a cohesive uh thing and you know when i was thinking of naming the company I, i did think of including the word robotics but what we do is so much more beyond maybe robotics and uh, people have a predisposition to the word robotics as well. And so um, even though a lot of what we do instantiates in those forms, the mechatronics is much more about 
how creating these intelligent machines to work in our everyday uh, using those three principles of mechanical, electrical, and software engineering. So when you um, sort of where, let's, can we go back to the beginning? What, what sort of got you into founding the company itself? Yeah, I, wow. Um, I, I had one of the most fortunate career starts anyone could ever have. And, and I think, uh, I just thank my lucky stars every day that I was I was uh, got the opportunity and privilege to work at the NASA Johnson Space Center for as long as I did, and that sort of started broadening my eyes about all the different applications of what core tech we were working on and where it could work, you know, where it could find its way out into the world. And uh, I'd say maybe two thirds of the way through my career, we would get visited at the lab. Uh, by people in the ocean space and the subsea space. So we, we, we were working on humanoid robotics and these are, these are, these are robots that take uh, an instantiate in the human form, uh, which is totally kick-ass to work on, you know, you know, building a humanoid robot to land on the moon or Mars and, or fly to the space station is just fascinating. And there was, so, there's so much analog between designing and developing something for space and the maritime industry. And so naturally we would get people come by the lab and say, you know, have you ever really thought about taking your technology underwater? And I was like, wow, that's an interesting idea. At the time it's kind of like, wow, but you know, I, I work at NASA. It's like the pinnacle of the pinnacle. What, 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 you know, not, not really. I haven't thought about it really because I think I'm in the coolest industry ever. And then as you start learning more about the underwater world, it is like another planet. It is, it's very hard to get to. It's incredibly hospitable to humans and machines because of just the environmental pressures and the corrosion. And I started becoming fascinated not only by the engineering challenge, but also the applications. And when I realized that the kind of tech especially the autonomy that we were developing for space flight had tremendous application underwater. It became this obsession of mine to, to apply everything that we had learned in space flight to the maritime domain. And I've spent the last, you know, six, seven years of my life uh, building and architecting a vision that is going to transform the industry. What is, uh, uh, this is probably a very easy question for you, but, but from the outside looking in, what, what is the difference between building uh, technology for space and for underwater? Um, I guess in my mind, it would be that there's different pressure and obviously heavy moisture in the, in the ocean. But is that the main, is, is that the main thing that, that is different? Or is there, what, is, what sort of separates the two? Well, there are, you know, there are, of course, the, the obvious characteristics between the two of them. One is dealing with a vacuum. The other one's dealing with the crushing weight of the ocean uh, pushing on, on you as you go deeper and deeper. Um, there's naturally, there are, uh, <laughs> there's much more life in the ocean than there is in space. Uh, you know, we hope to find a lot more of it, but, uh, you know, that sort of interferes with our work from time to time. But honestly, it's, it's, it's more characterized by, just the remote nature of your activity. And uh, each of them have their challenges of getting there, right? Um, you know, working at working on the seafloor, obviously it's done much more often in the ocean than than the, than space flight, but 
it, it, it's an incredibly challenging task to put something many miles under the water and get it to function for long periods of time, uh, especially when you're trying to uninvolve people as much as possible. And what really what our value proposition at HMI is, is, is how do we continue to do all the work underwater that we're accustomed to doing, de-emphasizing how much cost and associated personnel it takes to, to actually do yeah. that. And so we have that sort of analogy in space as well. We send probes places, right? We just dropped Perseverance on Mars. Uh, I say we and NASA and JPL. And, uh, you know, so you got you to send something on a long journey and it needs to work when it gets there. And so we've taken those ideas and put them into the products that we develop for the ocean space, which is we're going to be sending these semi-autonomous agents out into the ocean space and they need to work when they get there. And, and we draw a lot of inspiration by the similar challenges. You know, and I, I get asked frequently, what, what is more difficult, developing robots for space or, or the ocean? And I really haven't decided if it's 10 times harder or 50 times harder developing robots for the subsea than it was for spaceflight. And, and don't get me wrong, you have to expend a serious amount of energy getting to space in a, in a very short period of time. But once you're there, things are kind of chill. Sure, the temperatures swing around and you're dealing with vacuum, but, but you, can, you can set something in motion and 10,000 years later predict with incredible accuracy where it will be. It doesn't exactly work like that. There's stuff growing on everything. There's fish and sea monsters swimming by and there's, there's muck and mud and silt and it's hard to see and the currents are tough, but the pressures are just incredible. Uh, it's hard to fathom, no pun intended, uh, the depths. What, would be, what I was going to ask is um, on, on your website, I saw the uh, it's, it's I think it I think the words are transforming the blue economy and it's sort of you're already touching on it. And I just kind of want you to expand on that more because I want to get into some of your actual um, the, the, the machines that you're manufacturing. I don't know if machines is the right word, but um, I want to actually look at them. But I also want to understand before we get into it, sort of where the industry is at. Because when you're saying yeah. transforming, it, it leads to the, the thought that there's it's sort of either behind or there's a whole new frontier. So where is the industry at right now with robotics underwater and you know how they're bringing in data, getting you know putting implementing work underwater, things like that? I think we first need to discuss what the industry actually is because a lot of uh, I think it's highly characterized in the offshore world as, as an oil and gas centric industry. And, and there's, that's no doubt they get a lot of headlines mm. for working and developing things for the ocean community. But uh, the verticals of the maritime or the blue economy are, are quite diverse. And there's, if you just understood how much telecommunications cable cabling is, is in the ocean, uh, the, the, the port security and management, that is required for shipping goods all around uh, all around the world. The amount of mining that's done underwater, the amount of wind farms we were installing off of our coasts, the uh, the amount of server farms that are projected to be installed into the ocean space powered from those wind farms. Uh, these are all very distinct verticals, and of course, let's not forget how much protein actually comes out of the ocean, and focus on focusing on sustaining fishing techniques. So. But the way things are done, and it, we'll just we'll pick on oil and gas as as the as the um, prototypical example. But let's say I wanted to do something underwater. I mean, we have we have understood how to make a robot swim 
uh, and take pictures and do surveys. We understand how to do that. But what we don't really have figured out is in a sort of light asset model, how do we do actual work underwater? How do we take these manipulators that are connected to these remotely operated vehicles that are then connected to surface ships by a very lengthy and long and expensive uh, and hard to manage umbilical. And how do those things work several miles underwater without breaking the bank? And for the last 60 years of this industry, it's really been characterized by a, a large surface expression, namely like an ROV vessel, uh, dropping this dishwasher refrigerator looking boxy thing off the side of the boat, sending it down several miles connected with this uh, very long, expensive umbilical so that an operator in a chair, or rather operators, because it takes many people to run these machines, can directly teleoperate the robot underwater using uh, displays and televisions that give them an idea of what's going on underwater. And to me, it's, it's rather archaic. And uh, it's, it, you, we, we call these underwater robots, but they're kind of like, they're, they're, they're like a, they're like a backhoe, like a long backhoe as opposed to a robot. Mm -hmm. And so our idea is specifically at HMI is how we take this modern robotic ecosystem that, that is, that is everywhere on land and in, and embody that into our semi sentient and semi autonomous agents to dramatically lower the cost of actually doing this work underwater. And so when we say unleashing maritime autonomy, what, what we're specifically talking about is the creating higher self-directedness in these machines so that we can disconnect the umbilical. If you disconnect the umbilical, you have no more fiber optic telecommunication to the machine. So therefore you can't direct them in this sort of direct drive teleoperation way, looking at HD video on a, on a, on a display. You then have to understand the modern robotic framework of, of, of the AI and ML space of how the robot will consume information, make decisions robustly to be directed by a human, but in a very low bandwidth way at a fundamentally lower cost point. And something I think we'll get into later, but it's worth mentioning now is if you look at the carbon footprint associated with the old ways versus the way that we're talking about doing it, it is drastically different. In fact, the amount of market that Aquanaut could cover off would save about 58 million cars worth of CO2 every year. Really? That is, that's the activity that's going on underneath with those, uh, I, I guess, Old school robots. Yeah. Yeah, there's about 5 million hours worth of robot work done underwater every year. Really? Really? What do you, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, out of, out of, uh, what percentage do you think the oil and gas would, it, would that be mostly oil and gas or? No, it's, it, you know, they're, they're definitely a large portion of it, but, um, you know, let's call them 20 to 30% of the overall market, uh, in, in the actual, uh, I'd say the, the workspace, the, the, the tasks where you're taking two manipulators and you're, you're, you're performing an activity with them. There's a lot of space where you send a robot off. It does a survey, takes a bunch of pictures, consumes a bunch of data. You bring it back and you pull the thumb drive out of it. Right. And, and, and then there's this, a lot of hybrids where we use these ROVs uh, for 
for activities like that as well. And they're, they're, they're deeply ill-suited for it. And that's actually where a lot of the cost comes in, where we try to shoehorn in the, the asset we actually have in the region for doing an activity. It's just really not well-suited for I think this would be a good time to actually get into your your sort of flagship product. I know you have a couple others. We'll look at those. But um, the Aquanaut, uh, let's first off, another great name. Um, I'm sure it must be some sort of play on astronaut, I would assume. <laughs> well, actually, it's more of a play on Robonaut, which was our flagship product uh, or project, rather, at NASA, where we were uh, creating an astronaut helper. And uh, that, that program got around, got underway in around 97, 98, uh, saw a very, I would say, well-supported uh, maturation from, from NASA, ended up flying it to the space station, doing some uh, testing and, and looking at how it would work with astronauts and how it would do some remote operations and, and, and helping NASA understand and pave the way on how we would drop more uh, bipedal anthropomorphic robots on other planets. So uh, a lot of our early joiners at HMI came out of that lab. And so we really felt partial towards our, our upbringing there. And uh, we felt it was just a, a, good, uh, a, good, a good way to kind of harken back to our heritage. And so we decided to call, uh, call our flagship product here Aquanaut. And now we've sort of taken the NAUT name, the N-A-U-T, and we're starting to infuse it into other products that we've got. Can you tell, just talk a little bit about the product? I know you've touched on it, but sort of uh, dig into what it is, what it could do, um, you know, industry, what it like, like the oil and gas industry, what kind of savings it could have for them, you know, things like that. Yeah. Well, uh, so the first thing is that we do not require an umbilical. So when you, when you look at uh, what is quite literally holding the industry back, it is being able to touch an underwater thing, whether it's a valve or to put the manipulators in the sand and the silt and, and, and or the seabed and, and manipulate an object. I mean, let's not forget that the, the world is built around doing physical things, right? Uh, you, you know, it, I know we feel like there's only the only thing interesting to talk about nowadays is if you've created this really awesome app about how you aggregate data into this place to that place. And look, it's... Uh, how, how many subscribers are you gaining each month, right? I mean, yeah. that's awesome, great. But sorry, we live in a physical world and that physical world is going to require machines to, to, to work with us to advance everything, right? So, so I'm, I'm an industrialist. I'm, I'm much more on the industrial side. And so if you, if you take the, the proposition that we need to be able to work in the ocean in a, in a much more environmentally friendly and much more cost-effective way, you have to disconnect the point of action versus the life sustaining infrastructure for that robot. And as I mentioned, the umbilical is just central to that. Mm. So we came from the spaceflight community, understanding how to get robots to work over very little data. When we built spaceflight robots and, and, and we were going through the operational concepts and, and testing mission analogs, you don't, you don't get uh, high speed networks in space, right? You don't, you don't, you know, you, you're, you're not, you, there's no, there's no Netflix servers floating, uh, you know, in orbit uh, uh, for good reason, because the, the, the communications are kind of crappy. I mean, even, even the space station, all of its advancements still goes through routine loss of signals. And really, so, 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, there, 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 there. There's just patches uh, that the space station really can't communicate with ground. Wow. And so, so we kind of got brought up in this thinking that you're not always going to be able to reliably communicate with the robot. But you still needed to do stuff. You still need to have it plan actions and 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 physically interact and do useful work. That was really our 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 thesis at NASA. So if you if you take that as background, then you're not scared to say, okay, well, how do we communicate underwater without an umbilical? Well, you have a couple methods. You've got acoustic communication, and you've got you know light. Uh, RF, you can communicate a little bit, uh, extremely low frequencies at extremely low data rates. But if you want any anything appreciable, right? Think think like dial-up networking, nineteen eighty nine, mm-hmm. um, which you know we built the internet with that, so it wasn't useless. But if you want anything that approaches that, you have to use acoustic uh, communications. Um, light, light, you can get high speed, but not very far, you know, just think of like a few hundred meters and really good water conditions. So you're really relegated to these acoustic communication networks. So we said, okay, well, let's, let's look into them. What, what does that get us? And like I said, you know, it gets you, uh, get you data rates that you might've remembered when, when, uh, AOL was sending out CD-ROMs telling you how many free hours you had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, turns out, if you understand how to establish networking protocols that can deal with the, the um, I'll call them <laughs> intricacies and opportunities of what acoustic modems will give you, uh, then you're just not so scared about it. And if you also say, hey, listen, I don't really need high definition video to do something underwater. And you understand imagery compression and you understand how to actually uh, prioritize packets so that they can arrive and be reconstructed to an operator so that the operator understands what's going on and commands the robot appropriately. Well, you fundamentally change the entire game. Mm. And and to us, this was a long and historied story about how we got here. And now this maritime application is the manifestations of everything we've been doing for the last 20 years. That's what I was going to ask that all that you just said, is that, were you ready for, for that? When, when you started, you already understood all that. So was that, uh, I don't think any of it is sounds easy, but was that the easy part because you already had all that understanding going in or was there a whole new level of discovery that had to happen? Well, clearly we did not understand the domain um and the industries and the the company started the company started in a way where we said okay let's go find the seminal challenge of this industry and find the one that probably intersects the best with what our background is um we started the company and quickly got hooked up with some oil and gas firms that found our ideas compelling and just sort of wanted to try before they you know, test drive before they bought uh, the team and the company and our ideas. And we started finding our ways uh, into certain different sections of the industry. All the while we were thinking, okay, uh, it's nice. We're being paid to learn about this industry and we're starting to uncover what some of these major challenges are. And around 2016, I, I just noticed that the offshore industry cost was Unsustain- I mean, it was just unsustainable. It was broken because all we heard from people was the enormous expense of, of 
moving vessels out into the ocean space and dropping ROVs on them. And why can't we get this thing cheaper? And if you just break it down into its subcomponents, it's because no one had the technology to understand how to disconnect anything. And, and so we said, we've got some big ideas here. And we were able to raise two capital rounds of investment and then really went all in on this, this Aquanaut product development of which has spawned out many other things from this, I'd call it a moonshot engineering effort that has just led, you know, to this enormous maritime autonomy vision for us. So what was that the easy part, understanding the architecture? Well, it was in the back of our heads, but the maritime domain is, is altogether a very difficult uh, space to, to integrate. And, 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 and I started to understand, wow, I understand. I, I know I see now why there's been little innovation over the last 50 years. And I was going to ask why, yeah, because why? it is so ridiculously expensive to iterate anything. And, and there's a very critical set of infrastructure built on it working. Right. So if you're going to go down and, and mess with a few billion dollars worth of infrastructure uh, that, that screwing up has global implications. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've all seen some of these major oil spills and what tremendous harm they cause. You just don't take the risk. Right. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to progress towards a different way. And so what's got me really excited is there's these burgeoning and nascent markets that are that are coming online that are very willing to accept a new way of doing things. Mm. And so our go-to-market strategy is to lean into the people that are more progressive, right. get, the get the tech trialed out and, and working well, and then steer it back into the hydrocarbon markets where they, where they desperately need to do it a different way. But they're also a little, they're a little kind of uh, gun shy on, okay, can you, uh, I want to make sure it's going to work. I'm like, okay, well, check out, check out how much runtime I got in this other market over here. And we're doing the same thing for you. And so let's try it out. And so that, that strategy for us is, is playing out well. Um, we, we actually have a very two-pronged approach at our business. We're heavy in the defense industry. And that allows us to deeply uh, develop some of the, the, uh, the, the most advanced maritime autonomy. And then that we're able to pull that, uh, the parts that we can back into the commercial side which then we get to show, look at, look at how successful we've been over here. Your problem's a hell of a lot easier. Something I was going to, and you've sort of already, you're touching on a lot of the things that I wanted to ask. I wanted to sort of expand on them. And one of them is the testing part of it, because that must be quite a process, putting, getting a prototype. And then where, where do you even test? You mentioned defense. Um, is that sort of a testing ground or, or how do you get your actual like physical product into the water to start working out all the kinks and how everything's mm -hmm. going to operate? Well, uh, you know, early on, there was a lot of Home Depot engineering and Home Depot testing. Um, we, we were duct tape and bailing wire and, and putting things in buckets and looking at corrosion and looking at hydrodynamics and scale models. And, and, uh, but we've graduated a little bit, you know, as we started, as we started forming up the, the big vision and getting the funding to help us see it through. And we develop relationships with local test areas here in Houston. Houston's such a, it's, uh, we could do in another, another podcast segment on, on how amazing this damn city is, but, but there's a lot of test infrastructure here, especially for, for maritime areas, a lot of tanks, a lot of test centers. And we, uh, you know, we had a relationship with NASA about 
about 25 of us came out of NASA. So we, we, we all have networks and call on people. So early on, we do a lot of our early checkouts and commissioning uh, at, the, at NASA's Neutral Buoyancy Lab. And people are like, oh my gosh, how, how did, how did you, uh, how'd you get into testing over there? You guys must have some insider angle on NASA. And I'm like, I just paid them. I'm like, it wasn't, it wasn't anything special. I was like, you know, money talks. These guys, I was like, how much? And they were like, here's how much I said, okay. Uh, do you take a, you take Bitcoin? Um, so, so that didn't work. So I had to use real dollars. And, uh, so yeah, that's basically how we test over there. Um, and then, so, but, but that really forced us and that was actually incredible because it forced us to get, you know, all of our beep together. Right. Yeah. We, uh, we, at first NASA was like, okay, let me get this straight. You have this submarine that transforms into a humanoid robot and, it, you know, swims around and, and does stuff. And that's kind of scary for us. And we're like, yeah, I know, but it's awesome. Right. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to have to just really take this slow right now. Yeah. And so after getting it qualified and and passed all their safety review panels, it is now we have pictures of Aquanaut right next to astronauts. That's how comfortable NASA right. is testing uh, and training astronauts while we're doing our work as well. Mm. And uh, so that's a that was a huge win for us. This 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 robot is is very robust, very safe. And so safe that that NASA doesn't mind training their crew while we're also testing. And but then also, you know, Houston's on the coast, right? It's it's just it boggles my mind how many people really don't understand the amount of maritime infrastructure around this city, including you know, myself, what, honestly. I've, yeah, well, you know. one of the largest ports in the the country, um, and and plenty of open water. So we test out. In, uh, in the immediate area, Clear Lake and the Kima Channel and the Kima Bay and then Galveston Bay. And so we're actually planning a, a new mission right now for we just completed another vehicle. And so we're going through the commissioning process and, and taking it out uh, next week, as a matter of fact, and, and going to run it through its paces. So it's, it's, it was essential. In fact, I, I don't think I could have started this company if I lived uh, you know, in, in Austin rather, I mean, there's sure there's Lake Travis. We've actually tested in Lake Travis as a matter of fact, but, but it's, uh, you know, just not only have being able to just drive up into Houston, be in the energy corridor, uh, surrounded by all the fortune 500 energy companies, yeah. uh, looking for application and investment. If I'd have lived in Boston and tried to start a company like this, I'd be make, I'd be, I'd have been making two or three flights a week to get down here to take right, meetings yeah. and I do it on a lunch hour. And so, uh, it, you know, it's, it was, it's incredibly convenient. This, the city is, is got so much potential. And I think, and what I'm trying to show is that a deeply rooted AI and, uh, and autonomy company wrapping that uh, into robots for the ocean, um, you know, that's some of the hardest, that's some of the hardest machine learning technology problems you'll ever work on. And we're doing it right here in Houston. Okay. So how would you compare development of a product like yours to, you know, uh, let's say other autonomous products that develop, you know, cars and all these other things that, you know, robots and Amazon and, and those types of things. What, what, how would you compare it? I, I, this is what fascinates me and, and draws I think from the from the technologist and science scientist part of me, this is what really draws me to this space. The the kind of autonomy that you need to develop for the maritime community. And just look at some of the machine learning things that we're doing. 
the training data that is available to us is, is not nearly as plentiful. In fact, it's practically absent uh, as, as it might be for if I was building a self-driving car app. Let's say I'm gonna, I'm gonna develop an algorithm that avoids cats, right? Well, I need to know what cats look like and I need to know what they might be doing. And I can just you know, brute force learn and train and, and scour the internet for billions of images of cats contextually labeled about what Fluffy might be doing at the time with the ball and this child over there and how they're playing together, right? And it's just you, just, you just aggregate it all and train up on millions of images and bam, you've got this amazing algorithm. Mm. There's not a lot of imagery that is that exact for an underwater world because if you put Fluffy underwater and left Fluffy there for a while, Fluffy wouldn't look like Fluffy anymore. There's so much, there's so much crap that grows on everything that, that it's like, okay, let's say we're gonna go treasure hunting and we're looking for this cup. That cup, it won't look anything like what you're looking for, right? And so now imagine all this infrastructure that we need to work with that literally morphologically changes over time. How do you train a robot to understand that's what it's trying to find and do when temporally things are altering so much? And it's absolutely a fascinating problem. It's, we're drawing some of the best and brightest minds all around the country in the AI ML space to come work on these challenges. And, and, and it's, it's incredible. And that, that's what I'm like, why more people aren't into this space? Because the, 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 the challenges are deeply interesting. Not only are the societal benefits uh, huge, right? Let's just not talk, let's, let's talk about how much climate is affected by the ocean and we should study it more and understand that yeah. uh, more. But the challenges of actually developing the tech are enormous and it's, it's fascinating, frankly. Yeah, that's, and something you said earlier, you had, well, there's actually one thing I want to touch on. You said, um, how do we get into NASA? We paid. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Thank know, God for capitalism. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I, I hope there are some entrepreneurs that hear you say that because it's, I've, I've worked with a lot of people um, it, to build our company. We had to pay a lot of people, a lot of different times. Some of it was yeah. wasted, some of it wasn't. And I've seen a lot of, and some of them are good friends of mine, and they've tried to build businesses off just by making deals, just mm. networking mm -hmm. deals and deals. And it's like, okay, sometimes you just got to pay to get it done. Yeah. And it hurts, but just get it done. Oh, yeah. And yeah. On that little tidbit, I, I hope someone hears that and, and sees what you've built by just out, up front, just paying, just get it done. Well, it's the conviction, right? And yeah. I, I've, seen, yeah. I've seen this bifurcation in people's, mission and and i've run into entrepreneurs that have been like how did you you know do this how did you get it this far and i was like i was so convicted that i took a a war chest of cash mm -hmm. and i just went all in yeah and i said let's just get this thing done i wasn't i wasn't only moving when someone would sponsor the technology i was trying to make and pay me wow. to do it and then i was also trying to make money off them paying me to do it I said, no, guys, we're going to go out there and we're going to preach to this community the change that needs to occur in this industry. We're going to see who's willing to finance this thing, build a coalition of the willing, develop the products and walk uphill in the stiffest headwind against the strongest currents of people telling us that we're completely crazy. Because that, to me, is the funnest part of this whole thing. And that's how you end up where you are. The other thing that I want, you said a coalition and you said 
you said you did you start with a team of 25 people coming from nasa or did you build that over time oh build that over time yeah okay, i was gonna say we've drawn about that many people out of the lab wow. that we worked with but no it was it was, had much had much more meager beginnings than that i was gonna uh, say you you really <laughs> oh i'm not well liked over there right now be honest like you call you call over there they, they've been unhappy with the amount of uh, brain drain that they've experienced with uh, engineers heading this way. Well, I was curious, is that common for that entrepreneurial sort of spirit to come out of NASA? Because I would think it'd be a pretty, uh, pretty good job to have. I mean, a huge opportunity. Oh, yeah. so you, it really has to be. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. It's one of the, on the other side to, to someone to, to jump ship on a, an organization like that. Uh, when I was, I got a lot of crap for wanting to leave the mafia i mean the family i mean nasa (laughs) and um you know people were coming up to me saying i cannot believe you're turning in your civil servant badge and what are you doing where are you going this is this is ludicrous this sounds crazy and they're like you know nine out of every ten companies fail and i'm like you know i've always thought nine out of every ten companies succeed if they're started by people that should be starting companies to begin with. Yeah, that's right. And and so I always just had this belief that I was going to get it done. And but but they do have a great job. I I I I like I said, I thank and I'm blessed every day with the fortunate start that I had in my career and what it afforded me in not only my technical upbringing, yeah, my 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 sense of mission and accountability to the people I'm working around because you don't feel any, there's, there's no stronger sense of that than a place like NASA. And at some point though, I said, you know what? Uh, I love the place, um, but it's just not for me. And I decided to sort of walk away from it and build something I thought was compelling and, um, relevant especially now and that sense of mission has drawn people to this that in a healthy dose of stock option agreements and uh <laughs> but um i like yeah no you're right that. though it's it's, it's funny it's, because it's part of it it is part no, of it's absolutely part of it right yeah. and it, it played into myself right I, part of my job at nasa was to build partnerships between private and public entities oh. and i was like if I'm going to sit here and hustle for NASA for absolutely no upside right. uh, potential whatsoever and maybe a cost of living increase each year, uh, I'm going to go do this for myself mm-hmm. and I'm going to go architect what I think we should be doing. And, and if I win at this game, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which is it's not the only reason I'm doing it, but it's, not a, it's a nice result. Um, it's a nice uh, consequence <laughs> consequence of it yeah did you the vision of the company um i want to get back there's a couple of technical things i wanted to ask you just about the control system and that and mm-hmm. you've got a you've got another thing that i want uh the the olympic arm and i want to touch on those but before we go into that i want i wondered the vision of what the company would be you know the business model what the product actually is what it looks like did that has that stayed or has that transformed as well over time the company did not start in a capacity which we were like this is the this is the foundational product um however the one thing that i was sure of 
and and I, I have this record, you know, record and documented very early on. Um, in fact, I was speaking about it with even ex, uh, other government agencies. Uh, excuse me. I was thinking about it when I was talking with other government agencies about the application of manipulation underwater, mm. and uh, they. I was encouraged to think that is going to be a big deal in the future. And these, some of these government agencies were thinking about it from a defense perspective, but. Right. But commercially, uh, we felt like, okay, yeah, that's going to be a big idea. Now, it took a couple of years for that to come back into view. Um, and because, you know, you get out on your own and you're not getting paid and, and you're starting to sort of triage what's going to pull in a paycheck for you sooner than later. And, yeah. and so you'll, you'll, make, you'll, make, you'll make sacrifices in the short term, but you're actually, you know, investing in your own domain expertise to then capitalize on that and pay dividends with it later and so you know the the the, the this this idea you know it came about i'd say maybe 24 months after the company started maybe not even that long i wrote i wrote the the foundational white paper of aquanaut um, that we then started shopping around not only to investors but uh, defense community in late 2015, early 2016. And that's when we started seeing the reception of this idea. That's when we started organizing investment and capital raises and the mission of the company. And then we knew that it was going to be a full stack endeavor, right? We were going to have to own every piece of it because you couldn't, in order to just manage this convicted vision, you had to own every part of it. Because I didn't want to be, I didn't want the pressures of other people trying to take part of it away or alter part of it and put their influence on it. I said, well, this, this entire maritime autonomy stack, which I call the digital ocean stack, we're going to have to own every layer of it. That way we can manage its progress. So that must include, and that's maybe a good time to pivot into the control system. Again, you touched on a little bit earlier, but I think it's an important part because that the Olympic arm. Now, does the Olympic arm, is it controlled by the control system too? Are they under the same? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's, talk about, let's talk about the control system and then let's just touch on the, the Olympic arm as well. Yeah. Well, part of this uh, autonomy engine and this, this command and control interface is a product we have called Commander. And Commander is a software suite that uh, includes how an operator interacts with the robot and how the robot's thinking about what it's doing and handles all, and handles all the diagnostics, the health and status of the systems. And, and so it's sort of the nexus. It's kind of like our iTunes that we can attach these robotic devices to that allow us this ecosystem of, of operation. And so from, from Aquanaut, we realized that there was a, a few things missing in the, in the world. And as, as the domain, as the maritime domain moves from one that is built on hydraulics mm. to one that is built on electric actuation, hydraulics are messy. They leak. They, uh, they have their issues with with uh, the amount of infrastructure it takes to kind of prime and push the fluid around. Uh, there's a lot of environmental sensitivities around hydraulics. You leak one teaspoon of hydraulic fluid in the North Sea, that's a recordable incident, right? I mean, we've, I've listened, personally listened to 
prospective customers tell me the amount of paperwork and expense involved in just recording how much hydraulic fluid they leak on the jobs. And wow, we wish we had an alternative to hydraulic manipulation for these traditional ROV platforms. So we took a bunch of Aquanaut technology, repackaged it, uh, and said, here you go. Here is a work-class manipulator uh, that we, we call the Olympic arm that is fully electric, has absolutely no hydraulic working fluid uh, for, for transmission of action, has absolutely none of that. And it, is, and it actually is as every bit as strong as its hydraulic counterpart. And so there was a lot of mis, misconceptions in this community where people thought that, oh, hydraulic actuation is superior uh, to, to electric on any level. And we said, well, it just depends on where you draw the dotted lines around your system trade. Mm -hmm. And if appropriately engineered, and we felt really partial to this because of the advancements we made uh, at our earlier jobs, we said, we can, uh, we can do better. And we, we think we can actually build something that's going to perform as good. And I remember sitting in one of these design reviews with a prospective customer. And they were like, we had the CAD pulled up on the screen. And they were like, well, what, what is that? What is that? What is that middle thing that you guys are using to actuate this thing? And we said, well, that's, that's called a harmonic drive. And they were like, what is that? And, and funny enough, I just gone to a trade show where this, the harmonic drive company was giving out little plastic versions of it. And I just happened to have it in my bag. And so I reached into my bag and I handed it to him. I said, this is forming the foundation of, of all of our actuation. And I swear to you, this, this individual is like looking at it and playing with it. It looked like alien technology had just dropped out of the sky, landed in this conference room. And this person did not understand what they were looking at, let alone how to use it. And then I knew these people are way behind. <laughs> and I was like, wow, uh, I can see why there's such a de-emphasis on electric actuation because we had to solve these power density issues and these torque density issues at NASA that they hadn't had to do. And so we took a bunch of that, put it in, developed the electric arm, uh, developed an electric arm called the Olympic arm that uh, is every bit as, as capable as its hydraulic brethren. And we are seeing tremendous uh, commercial uplift of that platform right now. It's pretty amazing. Is that is the Olympic arm? Is that the same that's on the Aquanaut? Uh, there or is, is that a different arm. Uh, yeah. There, yeah, um, it's not the same um, because the ROV space, what I'll call the traditional, the conventional ROV space, which we wanted to help supply with the Olympic arm, is just kinematically configured differently than than Aquanaut. Okay. However, uh, in, in a way to say, um, we have something coming very soon that we're going to disclose and, and put out in the press that, you know, uh, just like, just like, uh, Boeing builds a bunch of different airplanes and Tesla has yep. a bunch of different models, right? You got the model S and the model three, maybe, uh, maybe there's going to be a new Aquanaut that hits, uh, very soon where it will have actually, uh, two Olympic arms on it. Um, uh, there's a, we want that sort of product crossover, especially with logistics and supply and manufacturing. So uh, um, I won't confirm it, but there, there might be a new Aquanaut drop uh, very soon that is going to not quite look like the one that we have now, but yeah, it's yeah. going to be uh, much more capable. And, and uh, it's going to, I think it's going to make some 
big movements. Well, I hope you get to come back on and uh, at some point and, and show us the, the updates. I'm sure in a year we'll be looking at some, some uh, pretty interesting stuff. Where do you, um, uh, something I was curious about is the, where, how much is it um, people understanding what you're doing as opposed to specifications? Here we have this, it's this business model, you know, you, you it's, it's uh, it costs this much to have it. It saves you this much. I mean, it's just brass tacks or as opposed to you're sitting um, with a team from an oil and gas company and they don't know who you are or they do know who you are. That what is what is your what is the obstacle of, of sort of getting into the, you know, creating business opportunities for you? There's a there's a there's a very large incumbency of extremely successful companies that have been in this industry a long time and you cannot discount uh, the, their understanding of the complexities and the challenges and what they've had to do to adapt that. And when we study them, um, we study them deeply because there's tons of lessons to be learned there and we respect all of them tremendously. Um, I feel like there's also this sort of pressure to handle things in certain ways uh, by, by just how the supply chain is set up on how they're paid and how they perform their work. And so we're, we're definitely trying to bust that and I get, I get caught in between having two different modes of selling because I'm, I'm constantly selling to an investment community that believes in the longer arc of this vision because we've, you know, it's going to take tremendous amount of money to topple over this industry. But I also have to then have a sales strategy of, of early adopters and go to market partners right. that, that believe in what I'm doing, knowing that it's not all done yet and all figured out. Right. Um, but but yeah, it never is, though. Right. I mean, hell, they still keep making upgrades to Excel. Right. How can they not have Excel done? I know I've been is- using it forever and they're still upgrading Excel. So honestly, I can't tell the difference. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I'm just like, all right, fine. You just move the paint format over there. Ah, stop it. Yeah. And um, so I'm trying, I'm I'm either trying to build uh, this investment vision and say, this is where the company's heading at the same time. Hey, here's some early commercial traction. Mm -hmm. Certain customers are, are, are more amenable to, to wanting to be that first in. Yeah. Um, And those are very special people. And, uh, and there's few of them. And, and then there's industries that are much more willing to take a chance on new technology yep. than, 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 than others. And so we have to pick our battles, but you know, I'm caught in this sort of blend of, of constantly trying to pull in the capital to, to see the growth of the company versus capturing the customers that, re- that illustrates to the investment community actually need the capital. And I'm not on yep. some harebrained, uh, uh, you know, mission where there's, where no one cares. And it's quite the contrary. I've seen everybody cares. Everybody cares. Everybody knows the problems. They, uh, there's just a lot of false starts in this industry. People have tried these things yeah, yeah. And, and it really takes someone who is just willing to burn it all down yeah. and fail at it to then move it. Right. Because I knew that we, it's not like I could have get hired at some, call just some big oil and gas company and then try to be a corporate entrepreneur to change the industry because there's too many people whose jobs are at risk and connected to what I'm doing. So you had to be on the outside, right? Yeah. And you had to be on the outside willing to fail completely at it right on your face and, and not care that you might. 
Yeah. It's, and it, yeah, it, it takes a certain type of people to do. I mean, ours, our little show is at a totally, it's not near at the level of technology that you're using, but every other show is trying to sell something else. That's how I say it. Um, and this idea that we could commercialize just doing interviews, that's it. That's all we do is interviews. Mm-hmm. That was a very foreign thing. I mean, people now it's normal because yeah. in a couple of years, but three years ago, I mean, it costs us thousands and thousands of dollars um, because of course, nobody advertised, nobody paid, nobody did anything. We no, yeah, exactly, exactly. And you have to, you have to be, I like the way you said, you have to be on the outside mm-hmm. because if you're too immersed in it, then you end up just sort of adapting to the industry standard. And it's, you know, 20 years later, there might be a change. Nope. Nope. But in today's world, if you do that, someone else is just going to take the spot that you should have taken. Yeah. Yeah. It's too exactly. fast. It's too connected. It just takes one other person to go, oh, well, there's a, there's a gap right there. And I'll take that one. Yeah. What's your, before we wrap up, what's your favorite part of, I mean, this is a very involved business. Um, what's your favorite part? <laughs> it is very involved. Oh my gosh. Uh, it, uh, my favorite part of the company is watching a group of people come together and do something that no, none of them individually thought mm. we could pull off. But there's a special tipping point that occurs when you get enough people and those sort of network effect interactions happen with a group of people that then can rise above. And I enjoy tremendously getting on the other side of a milestone and, and having a successful accomplishment and watching a group of people go through that and the actual coming of age of all the different engineering staff and levels and, 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 technic- and the technical prowess that they all have. And so, you know, obviously for me, I don't have a product. The company is my product, right? And then a quick, and then a, a second corollary to that is the staff that I have and their own journey is my product. Mm-hmm. Now, the byproduct of all of that is the things that we're doing and what they create and how they put it out into the world. Um, but at my, at my perspective, those are my first two products. Where, where do you think that, uh, and I promise this will be my last question. Where do you think that, that um, willingness to take risk and sort of that just the stomach for, for going through those. I mean, I'm, I can just imagine those first few years. Um, it's what every company. Oh, first few through. years and last six months. I mean, yeah, yeah uh, it never stops. It really doesn't. Yeah, no, it, it does not. I mean, where does that willingness come from to, to, to be in that sort of situation for years, essentially? Uh, well, if I were to speak for myself personally, um, I see opportunity everywhere and it's hard to, it's hard to just contain an enthusiasm once you see a gap, right? Frustration is sort of this gap between what you know is possible and what's actually happening. And, and I fuel myself, I'm wanting to close that gap. And then I think I'm just addicted to the absolute enormity of the challenge because it's such a multifaceted challenge. I have to build the psychology into the team to want to pull it off. I have to build the confidence into an investment community that we're going to do it. We then have to build some of the most advanced technology in the industry to do it. And it's that whole basket that we're weaving together that, that, is, that is this company. And I wake up every day just excited as hell to come to work. Um, there are some days I look in the mirror and I'm just like, I, can, I don't know if I can do this, you know? And, and by about six shots of espresso later, 
um, I kind of get that energy back. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, let's go to war. Fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's pretty much every morning. Yeah, no, it, it, no, I believe me. I know all the feelings. I, I sometimes have to walk 26 flights of stairs to get myself going. <laughs> Uh, Nicholas, thanks for coming on the show. I, I was very happy to have you on because I mean, what not, not just the product, um, you know, there it, it is an amazing product, but just the way you've developed the company, the way you built the team, sort of the journey the company's been on. And I, I hope I did it some justice. I mean, you know, it's a long form interview, but really you can't touch on, you know, I try, but you can't really touch on what the journey is. Um, but I hope I did it somewhat justice uh, featuring your company on the show, because it really is, it's not only amazing what you're doing, but it's its actually very important, the, the product and, and hopefully what it will do for the industry. It's a total honor to be here and thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and and uh, thank you for, for thinking of us. Okay, thank you and hope to have you back. Okay. Gowdy. Yes. I'm how, how cool. <laughs> it's super cool. Honestly, I, I think I, it's, it's something that uh, you don't, um, you don't really think about. And then when you see it, it's like, oh my God, it's, it's kind of astonishing at how much and how much work goes into it, honestly. I, I was, I was thinking the one thing they should, uh, the next Aquaman, they should try to get their their product <laughs> on the uh, in the movie um, okay Gowdy uh, where can people follow subscribe we'll have lots of links uh, to their company but where yes. can people follow okay so don't forget please subscribe to our YouTube channel we've got two episodes a week on there um, so that you don't miss a single episode from Crownsman Energy Mining Now the Crownsman Show and if you'd like to be a guest on the show or on any of the shows um, please contact us info at crownsman.com thank you very much Gowdy and thank you everybody for watching we will see you on the next episode of Crownsman Energy <laughs>